0: Chapter thirty three of the Mayor of Casterbridge by Thomas Hardy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter thirty three. At this date there prevailed in Casterbridge a convivial custom, scarcely recognised as such, yet none the less established. On the afternoon of every Sunday, a large contingent of the Casterbridge journeymen, steady church goers and sedate characters, having attended service, filed from the church doors across the way to the three mariners' inn. The rear was usually brought up by the choir, with their bass viols, fiddles, and flutes under their arms. The great point, the point of honour, on these sacred occasions, was for each man to strictly limit himself to half a pint of liquor. This scrupulosity was so well understood by the landlord that the whole company was served in cups of that measure, They were all exactly alike, straight-sided, with two leafless lime-trees done in eel-brown on the sides, one toward the drinker's lips, the other confronting his comrade. To wonder how many of these cups the landlord possessed altogether was a favourite exercise of children in the marvellous. Forty at least might have been seen at these times in the large room, forming a ring round the margin of the great sixteen-legged oak table like the monolithic circle at Stonehenge in its pristine days. Outside and above the forty cups came a circle of forty smoke-jets from forty clay pipes. Outside the pipes the countenances of the 40 churchgoers, supported at the back by a circle of forty chairs. The conversation was not the conversation of week-days, but a thing altogether finer in point and higher in tone. They invariably discussed the sermon, dissected it, weighing it, dissecting it, weighing it, as above or below the average. The general tendency being to regard it as a scientific feat or performance which had no relation to their own lives except as between critics and the thing criticised. The bass viol player and the clerk usually spoke with more authority than the rest on account of their official connection with the preacher. Now the Three Mariners was the inn chosen by Henchard as the place for closing his long term of dramless years. He had so timed his entry as to be well established in the large room, by the time the forty church-goers entered to their customary cups. The flush upon his face proclaimed at once that the vow of twenty-one years had, elap- had lapsed, and the era of recklessness begun anew. He was seated on a small table, drawn up to the side of the massive oak board reserved for the churchmen, a few of whom nodded to him as they took their places, and said, "'How be ye, Mr. Enchard, quite a stranger here.' Henchard did not take the trouble to reply for a few moments, and his eyes rested on his stretched-out legs and boots. "'Yes,' he said at length, "'that's true. I've been down in spirit for weeks. Some of ye know the cause. I am better now, but not quite serene.' i want you fellows of the choir to strike up a tune and what with that and the sprue of standages i am in hopes of getting altogether out of my minor key with all my heart said the first fiddle we've let back our strings that's true but we can soon pull em up again sound a, neighbours and give the man a stave i don't care a curse what the words be said henchard hymns ballots or rantipole rubbish the rogues' march or the cherubim's warble, tis all the same to me if tis good harmony and well put out. Well, he <laughs> he, it may be we can do that, and not a man among us that have sat in the gallery less than twenty year. Said the leader of the band. As tis Sunday, neighbour, suppose we raise the fourth psalm to Samuel Wakeley's tune as improved by me. Hang Samuel Wakeley's tune as improved by thee, said Henchard. "'Check across one of your psalters. "'Old Wiltshire is the only tune worth singing, "'the psalm-tune that would make my blood ebb and flow like the sea "'when I was a steady chap. "'I'll find some words to fit in.' "'He took one of the psalters and began turning over the leaves. "'Chancing to look out of the window at that moment, "'he saw a flock of people passing by and perceived them "'to be the congregation of the upper church, now just dismissed, "'their sermon having been a longer one than the lower parish was favoured with. Among the rest of the leading inhabitants walked Mr. Councilor Farfrae with Lucetta upon his arm, the observed and imitated of all the smaller tradesmen's womankind. Henchard's mouth changed a little, and he continued to turn over the leaves. "'Now then,' he said, "Psalm the hundred and ninth, to the tune of Wiltshire, verses ten to fifteen, I'll gee the words. "'His seed shall orphans be, his wife, a widow, plunged in grief.' his vagrant children beg their bread where none can give relief his ill-got riches shall be made to usurers of prey the fruit of all his toil shall be by strangers borne away none shall be found that to his wants their mercy will extend or to his helpless orphans seed the least assistance lend a swift destruction soon shall seize on his unhappy race and the next age's hated name shall utterly deface. "'I know the psalm, I know the psalm,' said the leader hastily, "'but I would as lief not sing it. "'Twasn't made for singing. we close it once, when a gypsy stole the parson's mare, "'thinking to please him, but parson were quite upset. "'Whatever servant David were thinking about when he made a psalm "'that nobody can sing without disgracing himself, I can't fathom. "'Now then, the fourth psalm Samuel Wakeley's tune is improved by me.' "'God seize your sauce! I'll tell you to sing the hundred and night to Wiltshire, and sing it you shall,' roared Henchard. "'Not a single one of all the droning crew of ye goes out of this room till that psalm is sung.' He slipped off the table, seized the poker, and, going to the door, placed his back against it. "'Now, then, go ahead, if you don't wish to have your cussed pates broke.' "'Don't he! Don't ye take on so? As tis the Sabbath day, and tis servant David's words, and not ours, perhaps we don't mind for once, eh?' said one of the terrified choir, looking round upon the rest. So the instruments were tuned and the comminatory verses sung. Thank ye, thank ye, said Henchard, in a softened voice, his eyes growing downcast, and his manner that of a man much moved by the strains. Don't you blame David, he went on in low tone, shaking his head without raising his eyes. He knew what he was about when he wrote that. If I could afford it— Be hanged if I wouldn't keep a church choir at my own expense to play and sing to me at these low, dark times of my life. But the better thing is that when I was rich I didn't need what I could have, and now I be poor, I can't have what I need. While they paused, Lucetta and Farfrey passed again, this time homeward, it being their custom to take, like others, a short walk out on the highway and back between church and tea-time. "'There's the man we've been singing about,' said Henchard. "'Players and singers turned their heads and saw his meaning. "'Heaven forbid!' said the bass-player. "'Tis the man,' repeated Henchard doggedly. "'Then if I'd known,' said the performer on the clarionet so solemnly, "'that twas meant for a living man, "'nothing should have drawn out of my windpipe "'the breath for that psalm, so help me.' "'Nor for mine,' said the first singer. "'But,' thought I, "'as it was made so long ago, "'perhaps there isn't much in it. "'So I'll oblige a neighbour, "'for there's nothing to be said against the tune.' "'Ah, my boys, you've sung it,' said Henshaw triumphantly. "'As for him, it was partly by his songs that he got over me, and heaved me out. "'I could double him up like that, and yet I don't.' He laid the poker across his knee, bent it as if it were a twig, flung it down, and came away from the door. It was at this time that Elizabeth Jane, having heard where her stepfather was, entered the room with a pale and agonized countenance. The choir and the rest of the company moved off, in accordance with their half-pint regulation. Elizabeth Jane went up to Henchard, and entreated him to accompany her home. By this hour the volcanic fires of his nature had burnt down, and having drunk no great quantity as yet, he was inclined to acquiesce. She took his arm, and together they went on. Henchard walked blankly like a blind man, repeating to himself the last words of the singers, "'In the next age his hated name shall utterly deface.' At length he said to her, "'I am a man, to my word. I have kept my oath for twenty-one years, and now I can drink with a good conscience. If I don't do for him, well, I am a fearful practical joker when I choose. He has taken away everything from me, and by heavens, if I meet him I won't answer for my deeds.'" These half-uttered words alarmed Elizabeth, all the more by reason of the still determination of Henchard's mien. "'What will you do?' she asked cautiously, while trembling with disquietude, and guessing Henchard's allusion only too well. Henchard did not answer, and they went on till they had reached his cottage. "'May I come in?' she said. "'No, no, not to-day,' said Henchard, and she went away, feeling that to caution Farfrae was almost her duty, as it was certainly her strong desire as on the Sunday, so on the week-days Farfrae and Lucetta might have been seen flitting about the town like two butterflies, or rather like a bee and a butterfly in league for life. She seemed to take no pleasure in going anywhere except in her husband's company, and hence when business would not permit him to waste an afternoon, she remained indoors waiting for the time to pass till his return, her face being visible to Elizabeth Jane from her window aloft. The latter, however, did not say to herself that Farfrae should be thankful for such devotion, But, full of her reading, she cited Rosalind's exclamation, "'Mistress, know yourself. Down on your knees and thank heaven fasting for a good man's love.' She kept her eyes upon Henchard also. One day he answered her inquiry for his health by saying that he could not endure Abel Whittle's pitying eyes upon him while they worked together in the yard. "'He is such a fool,' said Henchard, "'that he can never get out of his mind the time when I was master there.' "'I'll come and wimble for you instead of him, if you will allow me,' said she. Her motive, on going to the yard, was to get an opportunity of observing the general position of affairs on Farfrae's premises, premises, now that her stepfather was a workman there. Henchard's threats had alarmed her so much that she wished to see his behaviour when the two were face to face. For two or three days after her arrival, Donald did not make any appearance. Then one afternoon the green door opened, and through came first Farfrae, and at his heels Lucetta, "'Donald brought his wife forward without hesitation, "'it being obvious that he had no suspicion whatever "'of any antecedents in common between her "'and the now journeyman hay trosser. "'Henchard did not turn his eyes toward either of the pair. "'Keeping them fixed on the bond, he twisted, "'as if that alone absorbed him. "'A feeling of delicacy, which ever prompted Farfrae "'to avoid anything that might seem like triumphing over a fallen rival, "'led him to keep away from the hay-barn "'where Henchard and his daughter were working.' and to go on to the corn department. Meanwhile, Lucetta, having never been informed that Henchard had entered her husband's service, rambled straight on to the barn, where she came suddenly upon Henchard, and gave vent to a little, "'Oh!' which the happy and busy Donald was too far off to hear. Henchard, with withering humility of demeanour, touched the brim of his hat to her as Whittle and the rest had done, to which she breathed a dead-alive, "'Good afternoon!' "'I beg your pardon, ma'am,' said Henchard, as if he had not heard." "'I said good-afternoon,' she faltered. "'Oh, yes. Good-afternoon, ma'am,' he replied, touching his hat again. "'I'm glad to see you, ma'am.' Lucetta looked embarrassed, and Henchard continued, "'For we humble workmen here feel it a great honour that a lady should look in and take an interest in us.' She glanced at him entreatingly. The sarcasm was too bitter, too unendurable. "'Can you tell me the time, ma'am?' he asked. "'Yes,' she said hastily half-past four thankee an hour and a half longer before we are released from work ah ma'am we of the lower classes know nothing of the gay leisure that such as you enjoy as soon as she could do so lucetta left him nodded and smiled to elizabeth jane and joined her husband at the other end of the enclosure where she could be seen leading him away by the outer gates so as to avoid passing henchard again that she had been taken by surprise was obvious the result of this casual re-encounter was that the next morning a note was put into Henchard's hand by the postman. "'Will you,' said Lucetta, with as much bitterness as she could put into a small communication, "'will you kindly undertake not to speak to me in the biting undertones you use to-day, if I walk through the yard at any time? I bear you no ill-will, and I am only too glad that you should have employment of my dear husband. But in common fairness, treat me as his wife, and do not try to make me wretched by covert sneers. I have committed no crime, and done you no injury.' "'Poor fool,' said Henchard, with fond savagery, holding out the note, "'to know no better than commit herself in writing like this. "'Why, if I were to show that to her dear husband, poo!' He threw the letter into the fire. Lucetta took care not to come again into the, among the hay and corn. She would rather have died than run the risk of encountering Henchard at such close quarters a second time. The gulf between them was growing wider every day.' Farfrae was always considerate to his fallen acquaintance, but it was impossible that he should not, by degrees, cease to regard the ex-corn merchant as more than one of his other workmen. Henchard saw this, and concealed his feelings under a cover of stolidity, fortifying his heart by drinking more freely at the three mariners every evening. Often did Elizabeth Jane, in her endeavours to prevent his taking other liquor, carry tea to him in a little basket at five o'clock. Arriving one day on this errand, she found her stepfather was measuring up clover-seed and rapeseed in the corn-stones on the top floor, and she ascended to him. Each floor had a door opening into the air under a cat-head, from which a chain dangled for hoisting the sacks. When Elizabeth's head rose through the trap, she perceived that the upper door was open, and that her stepfather and Farfrae stood just within it in conversation, Farfrae being nearest the dizzy edge, and Henchard a little way behind. Not to interrupt them, she remained on the steps without raising her head any higher. While waiting thus she saw, or fancied she saw, for she had a terror of feeling certain, her stepfather slowly raised his hand to a level behind Farfrae's shoulders, a curious expression taking possession of his face. The young man was quite unconscious of the action, which was so indirect that if Farfrae had observed it, he might almost have regarded it as an idle outstretching of the arm, but it would have been possible, by a comparatively light touch, to push Farfrae off his balance and send him head over heels into the air. Elizabeth felt quite sick at heart on thinking of what this might have meant. As soon as they turned, she mechanically took the tea to Henchard, left it, and went away. Reflecting, she endeavoured to assure herself that the movement was an idle eccentricity and no more. Yet, on the other hand, Subordinate position in an establishment where he once had been master might be acting on him like an irritant poison, and she finally resolved to caution Donald End of Chapter thirty three